honor to preach God's word this morning to you. If you haven't met me, my name's Matthew. I'm one of uh, two pastors on staff. We have two other guys who are, Lord willing, going to join us as elders in the next year or so. Our senior pastor, Gene Emerson, um, who started this church in 1989 and is still faithfully pastoring here this morning, you may be thinking, where's Gene? Uh, well, Gene is in Florida, but Gene is not playing golf right now. I have that as a word from the Lord and a word from Gene. He's actually preaching at another Sovereign Grace church down there, uh, led by a man named Wayne Brooks. Wayne is a longtime friend of Gene, and like uh, Kingsway, Wayne's church is a Sovereign Grace church, and Wayne is the only pastor in that church, so he preaches every Sunday, 52 weeks a year, with no break. And I was thrilled that Gene could go down and give him a bit of a reprieve. So join me in praying for Gene and for uh, this sermon. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have united us uh, with a shared mission, shared values, shared governance with like-minded churches. Thank you that we are not alone. And Lord, I pray this morning as Gene goes to serve Wayne's church, your church, in Florida, near Orlando, that you would fill his mouth with wisdom. God, we pray that he would be able to shepherd and care for those people as an extension of this local body. We are grateful that you get to use us and our pastor elders to care for other churches and and other congregations. We don't want to be selfish with what you've given us. So would you bless him, Lord? Bring him back safely. And Father, I pray now that you would empower me to do what I feel every time I walk to this pulpit is an impossible task to in some way declare nothing less than the Word of God. How you work through feeble vessels and mouths of men amazes me. Lord, this morning I believe in the Holy Spirit as do my brothers and sisters here. And so I pray, Spirit of God, that you would speak through me and that you would give these precious people eyes to see and ears to hear so that it would not be said of them that they had eyes and didn't see and had ears but didn't hear. We pray for seeing, we pray for hearing that Jesus Christ might be glorified. Amen. Amen. And Lord willing, these props for later are still functioning well. I think it's safe to say, church, that every one of us is familiar with doubt. Thank you, Steve. Five to six-year-olds and five to eleven, five and six-year-olds, five to eleven-year-olds. We got three signs. There are a lot of kids ready to go. Uh, if you're between five and eleven, you can leave. Thank you, folks. Part of me would want to preach to you too. As I was saying, I think it's safe to say that every one of us is familiar with doubt. I want you to think about this with me. Sometimes our doubt is directed at other people. So if you're a Redskins fan, perhaps you're doubting that this season will be any different than the last season. I will not comment on that. Uh, Sometimes our doubt is directed at ourselves. Maybe you doubt that that you actually could ever get all A's on your report card. Or that you'll ever be free from a temptation to sin that won't go away. Maybe other people's doubt has been directed toward you. And, and a spouse or a friend has said something along the lines of, I doubt I will ever be able to trust you again. Or maybe when you were younger, a parent 
a moment of anger said that they doubt you'll ever amount to anything. Sometimes, and probably more often than we realize, friends, our, our doubts are directed toward God. Maybe you, you doubt that God exists, if you were honest with me. Or if He does exist, you doubt that He actually cares for you. Maybe you doubt that, that God could possibly be pleased with you after you have failed in some way for the tenth time in as many days. And you feel like you hear God's word preached Sunday after Sunday, but you keep walking out those back doors with no perceptible change in your heart. You feel like everyone around you, even the folks sitting next to you right now, they, they get something, they, they see something, they, they experience something spiritually when they're here that is just completely out of reach for you. It, almost, almost like you're you're living in a spiritual fog. You don't know how it came or, or when it will go away. I think doubt can feel like that when our doubts are directed toward God. And Jesus was familiar with doubt. But not because he was full of it. Because he was surrounded by it. I mean, think about it. Jesus performed miracles the world had never seen. Jesus gave teaching the world had never heard. And yet, even his own followers never seemed to get, at least initially, who the guy really was. And Mark writes his gospel, as I've said before, in large part, to answer this question, who is Jesus? And I hope you realize that that Mark could have answered that by just giving us a short, tidy little paragraph, and we would have been done with our study of Mark months ago. But he didn't do that. He, He gave us a story. A story that follows Jesus' followers as they travel from the land of doubt to the land of faith. And by the time chapter 8 rolls around, quite frankly, they've still got a long way to go. <laughs> a really long way to go. They, they still don't seem to get who Jesus really is, let alone believe Jesus for who he says he is. And, and I want us to realize at the beginning of this morning's sermon that that's a good thing for us. That's a really good thing. Because we're familiar, are we not, with, with struggling, with wrestling, with doubt toward God. All, all of us know what that feels like. And Mark 8 shows us, friends, how Jesus responds to spiritual ignorance and doubt. How, how he responded to spiritual doubt in the disciples and how he responds to spiritual doubt in our own life. I think Mark arranges all that Jeremy just read in the first part of this chapter to make at least four points about the nature of faith and doubt and the struggle that we have in this life between the two. Point number one, Jesus deserves our faith. He deserves our faith. If you've been tracking in Mark for some time, you know that the feeding of the 4,000 in this chapter is strangely familiar. And if you thought that, that's good. We didn't hit rewind on the series. Jesus fed 5,000 people in Mark chapter 6. And and here's what these stories have in common. He's surrounded by a large crowd. People have been listening to him for several days. They're in the middle of nowhere. They've run out of food. They're hungry. There's no food available close by because it's a long way home. And in both scenarios, at Jesus' request, the disciples muster up a few loaves of bread and some fish. But that's all they have left. If you're a caterer, this is like your worst nightmare. 
4,000 people, and you could hold all the food you got in your hands. But don't fear. Jesus, the miracle worker, is here. Can he feed them? Yes, he can. He takes the loaves and fish and multiplies them into enough food for everyone. Hero Jesus to the rescue. And if you've grown up in church like I have, you've heard this story before. And after a couple decades, it becomes little more than a nice reminder that if you too ever run out of food in the wilderness listening to Jesus face to face, you should bring a few loaves and a few fish. And he'll feed you. That's true because it happened. But friends, that's not all that's true. Please please track with this. Jesus didn't feed 4,000 people that afternoon. Primarily so 4,000 people wouldn't go home hungry. Jesus fed 4,000 people that afternoon to reveal something to them and to us about who he is and why he is worthy of our trust. Why he deserves your faith. So what do we see about Jesus here as he feeds these people that, that calls forth our faith, that, that deserves or makes him worthy of our trust? A couple things. First, in Christ we know the compassion of God. Notice Jesus didn't need an observant disciple to say, Hey, Jesus, you sound great. By the way, they're hangry, like really kind of on edge. And we need some food. I don't know if you noticed, but, but we're a long ways away from any food. So, so could you just kind of hit pause on the teaching and, and please help these people? He didn't need somebody to do that. He knew their need. He was fully aware. Verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Friend, that statement should reveal something to you about why God is worthy of your trust. He knows your needs. Even before you pray to Him, He's tracking with your needs. He's observing your need. Nobody else in this world may be aware of your need. God is. He always is. But His awareness of your need, friend, is not a data point We're a hidden folder in God's cosmic hard drive. His awareness of your need, it overflows in compassion towards you. In tenderness towards you. He's aware of your need and his compassion compels him to satisfy your need. In Christ, we know the compassion of God. Second, in Christ, we know the grace of God. This is amazing. I said earlier that, that just a few chapters prior... Jesus feeds no less than 5,000 men, which probably amounted to somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people. So we get to chapter 8. Jesus' disciples are, are staring out at a crowd of 4,000 people. So look at verse 4. Look how they respond. Verse 4. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? I read that, and part of me laughs. I'm I'm trying to be humble, but sort of put myself in the disciples' shoes. I'm thinking, guys, hold on. Let's argue from the greater to the lesser. You just watched Jesus, what I would have loved to watch Jesus do, feed fifteen to 20,000 people, and, and then you sort of walk around a bend in the road. There's another crowd, but it's a lot smaller, and you're like, what are we going to do? They, 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 they don't remember what he did. And if I'm Jesus, I... Oh, my. I would have had a field day with that. How how quick we are, friends, to doubt a God who has been nothing but faithful to us. Nothing but faithful. If you are a Christian and you look back on the history of your life, you know what banner you ought to see over it? God has been faithful. But what do we do? How's he going to provide? We forget. But what's amazing here 
it's not just that the disciples are, are dense like us, but, but that Jesus is so gracious. He, he doesn't laugh. He doesn't ridicule. He's not exasperated or impatient. He, he gave them, listen to this, he gave them what they didn't deserve. Another chance to learn that he was worthy of their trust. That's grace. That's grace. Friend, if you struggle with doubt, no, God is not, he doesn't have a checklist. You get one chance to fix it, two chances to fix it, three chances, okay, strike out. Bring somebody else in here who will respond. No. He's compassionate towards your doubts. He knows your needs. He's gracious. He's patient. Third reason he deserves our faith in Christ, we know the blessing of God. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. What is it that made the few small fish sufficient to feed the multitude? Verse 7. And Jesus, having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before you. Do you realize that in the same way that Jesus responded to their physical need with a physical blessing, friend, that so now today he responds to your spiritual need with a spiritual blessing. There's a parallel going on here. Jesus is doing things physically that are meant to teach us things spiritually. And just as he met a need with a physical blessing, so now, today, even in this morning, Jesus is on the move meeting spiritual needs with spiritual blessings. John 6 Listen what he says there. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here's what that should tell you. God didn't make you to find your life in chocolate fudge pie, a cushy retirement, physical health, obedient kids, the perfect girlfriend, or an annual vacation. He made you to find your life in Him. And there is nothing that you will ever find in this world that can satisfy your soul like Jesus. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You you can wander for decades. You can get all of it. And you will find nothing that that at the end of your life you can hold in your hand and say, I'm satisfied. You won't find it. But you can know it in Jesus. And you can know it in relationship with God through Christ. What 4,000 people experienced physically back then can become your spiritual experience today and they ate and were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces of leftovers seven baskets full i love that god isn't giving meager spiritual blessings through christ god isn't in the business of barely saving people or or barely finding a way to lavish goodness on you if you're a follower of Christ. He, he doesn't do barely or meagerly or stingy. He always does generous. It's the only gear he's got. In Christ we know the compassion of God, the grace of God, the blessed satisfaction of God. And for those reasons and many more friends, Jesus is worthy of your trust. He deserves your faith. That's point one. Jesus deserves our faith. Point two. Jesus requires our faith. He doesn't just deserve it. He requires it. Okay, so, so lest we think that faith, maybe you were thinking this, 
is just some sort of optional religious thing that we plug into our life if we want to do the whole well-rounded, holistic approach to living. Okay, Mark records this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. So these guys have seen the miracles. No doubt they they heard Jesus had fed the 4,000, but they're not convinced. And nor, mind you, are they dwelling in the land of doubt. To dwell in the land of doubt is to be in two minds, pulled between faith and unbelief. They're not pulled. They are minds made up squarely in the land of unbelief. They're convinced He's not who he says he is. They're not approaching Jesus looking to believe him. They're approaching Jesus looking to discredit him. And their, their verdict or their assessment of the Savior is not good enough, Jesus. Not good enough. Not, not enough reason to believe that your authority comes from God. And if you want us to believe that, you're going to have to prove it by giving us some sign, verse 11, from heaven. Who you are and what you've done is not enough. We need something else if you want us to believe in you. You know, I sympathize with that. I do. Part of, part of us thinks... I mean, come on, Jesus, they're, they're asking for a sign. Don't, don't, don't stress out about their motives. Okay, okay, they're having an attitude, but just don't worry about that. Give them a sign. Do something to prove that your authority is validated, just like Elijah did at Mount Carmel when he was before the prophets of Baal, and he prays, and fire comes down. Do something cool, like, like show us God's got your back. Jesus refused to do that. Look at verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. The way that's, that's written in the original language, it, it literally says, May I be cursed if I give you a sign. It's a big deal to Jesus. It wasn't like, well, I'll come back tomorrow, maybe I will. No, I will never give you the sign you ask for. Well, why not? I was asking that this week. Well, Lord, why not? I mean, they could have been saved. Well, I think there's two reasons Jesus didn't give them a sign. Okay, first, Jesus had already given them all the evidence they needed in his teaching and in his ministry for them to believe that he was the Son of God. What what was going on here was not a lack of evidence. What was going on here was a lack of humility that was willing to accept and believe the Word of God instead of the Word of man. Okay, but second, and and even more importantly, if if Jesus had granted them a sign from heaven, listen, listen to this, He would have reinforced the widespread notion that, that he was just another one of the prophets. But unlike the prophets, Jesus didn't need God to validate his authority. Why not? Because he was God. He was God. There is no higher court of appeal in the universe than God himself, and God himself was standing right in front of them. That, that's the whole point of of feeding the 4,000 and all these other demonstrations of his authority over, over sickness and, and nature and evil, for, for Jesus to submit to their demand and justify his authority by appealing to someone or something else that they thought of as greater than Jesus would have been an act of idolatry. God was standing in front of them. And they looked at God and said, summon a higher authority to prove your legitimacy. It would have been idolatry. Why? Because if Jesus had even acknowledged the presence of an authority higher than himself, than God, well, he ceases to be God. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. 
victim. Friends, I think that means that we need to be really careful when talking with non-Christians about Jesus that we don't try to justify his existence or prove he is who he says he is by appealing to some authority higher than him. Don't trust God because reason dictates it. Don't, don't trust God because science suggests it. Don't trust God because your spiritual experiences suggest you should, though all those things do. Okay, here's why. Reason is not authoritative. Okay? Science is not authoritative. Your spiritual experiences, though true and helpful, are not authoritative. God is authoritative, and God's revelation of Himself in the person of Jesus Christ is the authoritative statement about who God is. Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. He pointed to His authority. He, he validated Himself through their message and ministry. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Friends, God has decisively and authoritatively revealed Himself in the person of Jesus. And He will be known and He will be validated ultimately by no other means than faith in Him. We need to take care that what we think is faith in God is not exposed at the end of time as mere faith in the gifts He gives. There's a difference. Faith that that ebbs and flows on the tide of your your physical health or your, your immigration status or your paycheck is not biblical faith. Why not? That's faith in a gift. Biblical faith is faith in the giver. Okay, biblical faith has an object, the person of Christ. Biblical faith has a foundation, the work of Christ. But biblical faith isn't built on your subjective spiritual experiences as great as they are. Biblical faith is built on the objective word of promise to you from God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you stand on, Christian. That's what faith is. It's objective. It trusts Jesus when he says things like this in John 6, right after what I read earlier. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Trust that. That's what faith is built on. The promises of God's word. Which, praise God, they don't change depending on what side of the bed we woke up on. Whether you feel like he's just not there. I'm just, oh, aren't you grateful that God is not this mystical construct of our daydreams? He's actually real. He exists. And He's true and right and good. And through Jesus and what we see of Him in Jesus, we know He deserves our faith. And through His final authoritative revelation of Himself in Jesus, we know that He requires our faith. He deserves it. He requires it. Point three. We often lack the faith He deserves. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus, he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. I'm not really into baking, 
So I have to confess that I had to get on my computer and Google how does yeast work. As a chemistry major, I was humble that I couldn't remember and thrilled when I learned. It's really cool. But if you're not familiar, let me explain. Leaven is another word for yeast. I have some yeast here. It's really, really, really tiny. I don't know, maybe, maybe some of you have good enough eyes. You could count how many yeast grains I'm holding. Good luck. But, but what happens when you take yeast and you, you, know, you put it in a, mix it in just a, a little bit in dough and leave it? is that the dough is radically transformed. I mean, it, it, if I ate this right now, it, it really wouldn't be good. Would it taste good? Wouldn't it be fluffy and airy? We, we think, but I put the yeast in, I put the leaven in it, and I wait. And over time, it does something amazing. Okay, look at that. It actually grew even after it was dropped on the stage. <laughs> Why? That's because it's, it's what it does. There is the, the same amount of flour went into both of these bowls. But this one has leaven. This one has yeast. And it, and it grew. The, the yeast transformed the dough. And it only took a few little grains to do it. So what's the lesson? Okay, think about this. What, what's the lesson here? The yeast is small. It's subtle. It's it's hard to detect. But just as a little leaven leavens the whole lump, friend, the tiniest little grain of the attitude of the Pharisee or the attitude of Herod will sabotage your faith. Sabotage it. Right? We, we, we think of leaven in good terms. You know, we, we, we like the transformation. Jesus' point is, is simply that a tiny little bit works a big transformation, and in this case, the transformation is not good. You, you adopt just a little bit of the attitude of the Pharisees or Herod, and it will sabotage your faith. So, so what's the leaven of the Pharisee? Well, it's not a mystery. As we saw in Mark 7, just a chapter earlier, it's relying on religious traditions or external obedience to get right with God and stay right with God. That's the leaven of the Pharisees. It's an attitude that says, you know what, as long as I go to church, most Sundays out of the year, put put a little money in the offering, and be nice to people, God will be pleased with me. It's also the attitude that says, when you walk into a less than spotless house where the kids don't come from the same parents, these people must must not be Christians, or at least they're, they're not mature Christians like I am. Friend, I don't, I don't care how long you've been a Christian. Every single one of us is susceptible to reducing faith to a list of social markers. Every one of us. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. It feels good to say to ourselves, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men who can't pay their bills on time, don't seem to care about their front lawn, or watch TV shows every night. It feels good to say that. It's easy to spot self-righteousness in others. It's hard to see it in ourselves because it's like leaven. And the smallest bit of self-righteousness, the smallest bit of relying on your external obedience to get right with God or stay right with God will sabotage faith in Christ. Every time. Every time. I I couldn't stop this leaven from making this rise once it went in if I wanted to. And here's why it sabotages our faith. Because Jesus didn't come to save the righteous. He didn't. He came to save sinners. And unless you live your life at the foot of the cross, 
amazed morning by morning that God's disposition toward you is one of steadfast love because Jesus lived your life and died your death, you will lack the faith that Jesus deserves. You've got to beware that you don't allow confidence in your religious performance or moral obedience to replace faith in the finished work of Jesus. The whole point of Jesus is that you can't save yourself. But he can. It's the first thing that can sabotage our faith, our our self-righteousness, our legalism. Here's the second thing. This leaven of Herod. Well, if you remember Herod in Mark 6, he killed the last of the Old Testament prophets. He killed John the Baptist. He He was initially strangely drawn to the teaching of John the Baptist. But when push came to shove and Herod had to choose between, you know, saving John... Obeying his message, kingdom of God, and saving face? Bowing to God's authority or protecting his autonomy? Guess where Herod went in with? He saved face. He didn't, he didn't want ultimately to submit to the authority of the kingdom of God. He was curious, interested. But when he had to choose, he protected his own authority. Friend, you might not be guilty of killing a prophet of God, but we do the exact same thing here did. Exact same thing. We, we want to go this way. God says, go that way. And what do we do? This way. Just like here. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the big things that we've heard preachers rail on before, you know, sex and drugs and alcohol. I, I'm, I'm talking about any area of life where you are bowing to your authority instead of submitting to Jesus' authority. And that could be the, the secret bitterness that you harbor against your spouse or, or the fear of man that keeps you from sharing the gospel with your, with your next door neighbor. The smallest areas of compromise of willful disobedience, if we leave those in the dough of our faith, will entirely corrupt us. Sabotage us. And uncorrected, destroy your relationship with God. Friend, any decision you make to feed your sin instead of fighting your sin is like scattering poison in the soil of your soul. And faith can't grow in that soil. And any faith that has taken root, you scatter that poison, eventually it's going to shrivel and die. And eventually, Jesus will feel as relevant as an 8-track tape. Legalism, saving ourselves by keeping the rules, and license, trying to save ourselves by breaking the rules, both sabotage faith in Christ. But if you're not convicted already, there's a third thing that can sabotage us. Look at verse 16. A third reason we often lack the faith he deserves and requires. Verse 16. Jesus warns them of the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. Notice this. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Oh my. Again. If I was there, had the perspective I do, I would be so tempted to say, guys, guys, are you kidding me? You're kidding. You've been drinking. That, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. J- Jesus is making a spiritual point here. Why are you so hung up and consumed with physical problems. Jesus is trying to teach you things spiritually, so so listen to him and trust him. I mean, enough with the ration worries. That would be the right thing to do. But you know that's not what we naturally do? We don't. We don't. We naturally allow the cares and concerns of this world, this physical world, to distract us, to draw us away from giving any attention to faith in Christ. We do. We're, we're just like the disciples. So, so think of it this way. We'll, 
remodeling your bathroom, which we're doing right now, destroy your soul? Will working long hours during tax season ruin your faith? Okay, will saving money for a disabled child or doing your, your fifth load of laundry in three hours corrupt your relationship with God? Well, it doesn't have to. But you know what? It can. It can. It's so easy to come in on Sunday and think about God for 90 minutes and then go right back to your paperwork and your TV show. So easy. And whatever faith legalism doesn't destroy and license doesn't kill, but the physical pursuits of this life, our pleasures in this world, are all too happy to finish off. In other words, you don't have to actively decide to not believe in Jesus for your faith to be sabotaged. All you have to do, all you have to do, is become so preoccupied with the physical stuff of this physical life that unbeknownst to you, your faith shrivels and dies. That's scary. Because you may have never made a conscious choice to reject the Son of God. But you know what happened? You gave Him no attention. You gave this physical world the first and best of your thoughts, your money, your time, and your affections. And that will kill faith in Jesus. The disciples, this is what's so sobering, they had all the evidence they needed for vibrant, enduring faith in Christ. They, they watched him feed the 5,000. They watched him feed the 4,000. They held all the leftovers. The Son of God, God himself, was standing before their eyes, and they didn't get it. Faith did not rise up in their hearts. He deserved their faith. He required their faith, but they lacked the faith he deserved. They were spiritually blind, like, like a man standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon with absolutely no sense of the majesty before him. So how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 22. Because friends, the end of this chapter, with which we will conclude, is one of the most powerful moments in the entire Gospel of Mark. Verse 22. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clear. There are only two times in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus heals a blind man. One of them is here in Mark 8, and the other one is later in Mark 10. And you know what comes between them, these two healings of blind men? Three predictions of Jesus' death and resurrection as Savior of the world. These healings are like bookends. And guess what kicks off the first prediction? We're going to see this in two weeks. Peter finally gets it. He finally confesses at the end of Mark 8 that Jesus is the Christ. What comes right before that? Jesus heals a blind man. And if that's not enough to clue you into the fact that there's something going on deeper here than just a physical healing, notice that this is the only healing in Mark it's progressive. That should strike you as odd. That, that should catch your attention. It, it's almost like Jesus didn't make the cut. You know, he didn't get to play on Sunday. He, he didn't make it. But it's Jesus. So we, we've seen, he can just heal people with a word. I mean, people were touching him and, and he, they just were completely healed. So, so what's going on here is not a lack of power to heal. What's going on here is Jesus is 
teaching us something about what he came to do and what he delights to do, friend, in your life and my life spiritually today. Here's what it is. Here's what it is. Jesus deserves our faith. Jesus requires our faith. We often lack the faith he deserves, but praise God, he gives the faith he requires. He gives to you, friend, the faith he requires from you. That's the point of the healing of the blind man, that that God himself would confront our doubt, would perceive our spiritual blindness and say, I'm not going to leave you that way. I'm going to heal your doubt. I'm going to restore your spiritual sight. I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself, even if you wanted to. I'm going to open your eyes so that you can see me. He deserves your faith. He requires your faith. We lack the faith he deserves. Praise God. He gives the faith he requires. He gives it gives it. Think, think of how you became a Christian, okay? Help me out here. Raise your hand if you became a Christian the very first time you ever heard the gospel. Very first time. Raise your hand. Okay. We've got one. And I know that, brother. I know it's legit. Raise your hand if you became a Christian sometime after you first heard the gospel. thought so. Let's be clear. There is always a moment in time where the Spirit of God regenerates the dead soul of man and opens eyes and you go by faith from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That change is at a point in time and it is decisive and it is bought by the blood of Christ. But from our vantage point, conversion, that change, becoming Christian, is typically a process. It's a process. And, and that should shape our expectations in evangelism. That, that should make us grateful that God didn't give up on us the first time we heard and didn't buy. The first time that we heard and didn't believe. He's patient. He's gentle. He's persistent in chasing us down and giving us the faith He requires. Friend, there is no doubt or spiritual blindness in your life or in the life of anybody around you that is too great for the power of God to overcome. He he delights to reveal himself to people who aren't looking for him and aren't interested in looking for him. I love love how Richard Sibbs, a Puritan, says in his book, The Bruised Reed, you may have heard this before, Richard Sibbs says it this way, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is more power to give faith in Christ than there is power to disbelieve in Jesus. There is more ability to restore spiritual sight in Jesus than ability to doubt in you. He is in the business of giving the faith he requires. So friend, if you are wrestling with doubt, if you are struggling in two minds between faith and unbelief, let me encourage you. Jesus isn't waiting for you at the finish line of faith. He's he's personally ministering to you. Even now, just like he he took that blind man by the hand and led him out of the village, he he laid his hands on him. He's, He's laying his hand on you. Jesus was never nearer to the blind man that in the midst of his transformation from physical blindness to physical sight. And if you are struggling with doubt, know this, Jesus is never nearer to his kids than when he is leading them and healing them and healing us from doubt. And in the midst of your struggle with doubt, if you sense that a seed of faith is beginning to take root in the soil of your heart, please don't think that's just a passing fad or the preacher infected you with something or, or you ate bad Chinese last night. Don't, don't, don't think that. If a seed of faith is taking root in your heart, know this. Almighty God has given you a gift. 
personal gift. Don't, don't discount the process of learning to trust God. Don't lose heart in the process because even that mustard seed of faith is the sign that God's at work in your life. And if like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, you too often leave the way of faith to tarry near Doubting Castle, friend, take heart in knowing that a day is approaching when all your doubts are going to be gone. And fly away. 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mere dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be fully known, even as I have been fully known. Doubt doesn't get the final word. Ever. Ever. Jesus deserves our faith. Jesus requires our faith. We often lack the faith he deserves, but wonder of wonders, he delights to give us the faith he requires. Ephesians 2 For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this, this saving grace of faith, is what? It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Any faith in your heart right now toward God is nothing less than a gift. Did your Bible reading help it grow? Hopefully. Does your time with other Christians help it grow? Yeah, do that. But ultimately, you don't produce your own faith. God gives it to you. Which means, friend, if you are struggling with doubt, the application of this sermon is not to try harder to trust Jesus. The application of this sermon is to cry out to your Father in heaven who delights to give faith. You can't work it up, but you can run to the one who gives it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are God who gives faith. Thank you for the way you confront our doubt with patience, persistence, summoning forth our faith, proving yourself worthy of it. And Lord, ultimately, at the end of the day, giving what you demand. Lord, with with St. Augustine, we pray, command what you will and will what you command. Thank you for promising to do that. And I pray as we now sing this song, giving thanks for the fact that for so many in this room, you have opened our spiritual eyes that our hearts would rejoice, our mouths would give thanks, and we would be less proud and more humble. In Jesus' name, amen.